Give the people what they want. Give the people what they want. Give the people what they want. Your weekly movement news roundup. You're with Give the People What They Want, brought to you from People's Dispatch. That's Zoe and Prashant. I'm Vijay from Globetrotter. Great to be back with you. 127th show, the 60th anniversary of Cuba's medical missions abroad. Cuba has sent doctors to 165 countries. Um, That's almost all the countries in the world. Over 600,000 medical personnel uh, have been traveling the world. The first medical mission was to Algeria in 1963. So salute to the Cuban Medical Brigade. Great job, guys. You're really helping make the world a better place. Um, Not so the government in Ecuador. Guillermo Lasso, not really trying to make the world a better place or even a better place for Ecuadorian people. Zoe, what's been happening in President Lasso's Ecuador? Well, a very interesting turn of events. Last week, um, Guillermo Lasso applied and uh, implemented the cross-death measure, which is a very dramatic name and actually is a quite dramatic measure to implement. Uh, It essentially dissolves the parliament, calls for early elections, and allows him to rule by decree for the next several, several months. And why did he do this? Well, he was facing an impeachment motion And this was not a lawfare case, a politically motivated case really against him. It was actually specifically about his involvement uh, in different corruption schemes in the country, his implication in a a drug trafficking network run by his uh, brother-in-law. So many serious, serious allegations on the table. And he was sensing that uh, the opposition was gaining strength. People were believing more and more these accusations against him. And in an interview about, uh, I think, a week and a half before this impeachment measure was about to take place, he said, I will not allow this to go forward. If it comes to it, I'll implement the cross-death measure. And that's what he did. Uh, And so now, essentially, he has plunged Ecuador into an even deeper crisis. And it's worth noting that under the presidency of Lenin Moreno, his predecessor, and, you know, during just the two years that he's been in office, Ecuador which was formerly a, a quite stable country, um, you know, with, which, with economic growth, et cetera, has really gotten to a very serious situation. Um, it is now one of the countries that has the highest rates of immigration, the, the, the second uh, nationality that's crossing uh, the Darien Gap, the very perilous crossing uh, from Colombia to Panama to migrate north to the United States, huge increase in my immigration, and an even bigger increase in organized crime, in homicides. We've reported a lot of people's dispatch about the prison massacres that have taken place. Um, Horrific incidents where dozens of people have been killed inside the Ecuador's prisons. Guillermo Lasso has really not done enough to address this. Um, In all of these cases, with all of these phenomenons, with the rise in crime, with these massacres, his excuse is, oh, well, uh, it's because Ecuador is between the drug producing countries. What can we do? We're trying to address it. Um, and then, of course, when the investigation by an alternative media out- outlet, La Posta, comes out, connecting him to drug trafficking in the country, uh, people, of course, are less than happy. So as of now, um, Ecuador, he's going to call. There will be new elections held. Um, and it's important to say that in the last 
uh, in the local elections, which took place a couple of months ago, um, the left-wing opposition under this umbrella of the Citizens' Revolution led by Rafael Correa, of course, he's not in the country right now, but this political tradition started with his presidency, this movement, uh, which saw the rewriting of the constitution, amongst other things. Uh, this is uh, the movement that has actually really been gaining strength. Of, uh, the, the mayor's office in Quito is now run by Pavel Munoz, uh, who's also from the Citizens' Revolution. So people are expecting that if uh, and when, really, when these elections happen, that it's likely that the opposition, the left-wing opposition, may actually come back into power. And this would be an interesting development in a country that's had six years of neoliberal destruction, IMF loans, a real backwards turn from the policies that had been implemented before. So extremely interesting events in Ecuador. The cross death has set in a new phase of what's happening in the country in this political crisis. And of course, we'll be following it at People's Dispatch. Very good stories at People's Dispatch on this already and coming up about Ecuador. We started the show talking about the 60th anniversary of the Cuban Medical Brigades, 1963. That's a banner year, Prashant. That same year is the year of the creation of African unity, as it were, the organization of African unity. 60 years in, tell us what we should have thought about yesterday during Africa Liberation Day. Right. So <clears throat> the day, like you said, is marked as African Liberation Day. And it's when the OAS was, so OEU was founded, in uh, 1963, that was actually a very landmark moment. Ghana had become independent in 58. There was this wave of you know, independence struggles going on across the continent. And a number of countries within that very short period from 58 to uh, 63, there was this wave of uh, 32 countries that became independent. And all these countries came together at a very vital moment, realizing that on the one hand, they had succeeded at one level in fighting off their colonial oppressors throwing off the colonial yoke. But on the other hand, the threat of colonialism remained nonetheless in new forms. That while some of the colonial powers might have left the continent, not all of them, some of them might have left the continent, their impact continued in a number of ways, both through the presence of uh, their military forces, to the kind of private contractors, mercenaries they engaged, to the attempts they made to overthrow governments, and to the kind of financial policies that they were imposing on the newly independent countries, which really prevented any, uh, you know, any sustainable or alternative way of growth. So that was the context in which this uh, organization was founded in 1963, and it was a very important moment. And the decades since have been uh, fraught with conflict. There's no other way to say it. On the one hand, of course, we, we saw that this, uh, and we've talked about it often on the show, uh, the, the OAU's founding in 1963 was one of those moments where there was an attempt to sort of build uh, from the global south a different kind of global architecture. We had a non-aligned movement at that time, you know, coming up around the same time as well. They were in the lot of the UN bodies. There were attempts by countries of the global south to work together to create a different vision in every aspect of life, not just in governance, but also the economy, but in culture, in media, in all these spaces. But on the other hand, the level of and colonial and neo-colonial oppression or continued through all these decades as well. And some of the worst examples are, of course, the brutal coups, the killing of uh, progressive leaders such as Patrice Lumumba, the fact that Nkrumah himself was overthrown. And this was something that continued through the years uh, and, and through the decades in Africa. So today, uh, yesterday, movements across the, the continent gathered together in various parts. 
Uh, we carried a report by our correspondent Tanupriya detailing one such event, which was held in Pan-African television, where a panel of experts, um, members of popular movements, talked about some of these issues. The fact that the struggle is not at all over, the fact that the extraction of resources, the use of Africa as just a site for extracting resources, both mineral and human resources, let's be clear, continues to this day. And on the other hand, there is, you know, a skewed set of policies which are imposed in African countries, which really prevent any sustainable development. We have countries like Ghana, we have countries like Zambia, which are battling IMF loans. There's no other way of describing it, which are imposed in very oppressive conditions. The economy is being destroyed, no productive, you know, no scope for increasing productive activities. We have countries like South Africa, for instance, struggling with uh, load shedding of various forms, uh, you know, all of which is connected to this kind of economic systems, uh, austerity policies and all that. So I think for uh, movements across Africa, African Liberation Day is a moment to sort of take stock, understand the interconnected nature of their struggles, because it's not one country's struggle, but uh, the struggles that are of an entire continent. And also the fact that these are uh, the struggles of today are connected to the struggles of the past. It's not that, uh, you know, the legacy of the past that still continues, uh, the legacy of hundreds of years of colonialism, they're still battling it in many parts of the continent. In the case of places like Western Sahara, it's more direct. In some other places where, of course, there are government, independent governments, but uh, they are still battling various forms of colonialism. So very important day. I think it's one of those days which does not get enough after the global media does not get enough attention. Uh, the organization of African unity itself was renamed as the African Union. And, you know, the day's significance has officially kind of been, I wouldn't say entirely erased, but it's been kind of sidelined. But I think that's why for people's movements, for radical organizations, this day continues to be of such importance because it is a reminder, I think, of that uh, the, uh, the interconnected nature of struggles, both geographically and over time. Well, you know, Prashant, it's the 60th anniversary of the organization of African Union, now the African Union, uh, you know, but it's the 30th anniversary of the Windhoek Declaration on media in Africa. And, you know, what you just said about how there's really lack of coverage about stories from the African continent applies indeed to Africa Liberation Day, a day that should be covered by the world's media, but simply is not. Well, another interesting story, not much covered. I'm glad I went on the hunt for it, uh, for Globetrotter. And the story is, uh, can be found at the People's Dispatch page. Uh, starts with an interesting Monday meeting conducted by Warren Buffett of Berkshire Hathaway. Now, I had the, um, the distinct pleasure as a journalist to spend over two hours watching the morning meeting online with Mr., where Mr. Buffett, at his age, extraordinarily without notes, speaks for over two hours, takes questions from shareholders and so on. In this meeting, there was an interesting moment where Mr. Buffett talked about the U.S.-imposed um, war on China and particularly uh, crosshairs on Taiwan. Mr. Buffett warned, said, look, this is not good for anybody on the planet. This sort of conflict needs to be uh, negotiated downwards. Nobody can win this. You know, it, it was pretty clear um, with his anxiety about the nature of the um, let's call it new Cold War being pushed against China. I found that interesting, the, the statement made by Mr. Buffett. Well, the statement was made by Mr. Buffett in the context of um, Berkshire Hathaway pulling out of a $4 billion stake that it had made uh, 
in a semiconductor plant based in Taiwan. In fact, it's not a semiconductor plant. It's a multinational semiconductor company, uh, most of whose plants are in Taiwan. That's TSMC. It's not a, um, a just a Taiwanese company. TSMC has, has plants around the world, including two of them being built in Arizona in the United States. Well, Berkshire Hathaway pulled out of this investment. That was interesting. Um, but TSMC at the same time, very well aware that the U.S. Uh, campaign against uh, China has had a net negative impact on businesses in Taiwan. A lot of investment has been fleeing from Taiwan, worried that a conflict is coming. And it was simply not a good idea uh, to either continue with investments in Taiwan uh, or to uh, to make new investments in Taiwan. This is, of course, troubled the Taiwanese administration because the Taiwanese administration has to balance um, its close ties to the United States government with the sense that any more warmongering is going to lead to capital flight from Taiwan, which will be catastrophic and has already been pretty hard hitting uh, for the Taiwanese economy. Um, then you got some strange characters, Seth Moulton, congressman from, from Massachusetts, and Robert O'Brien, who was Donald Trump's uh, national security advisor. Both O'Brien and Moulton made bizarre comments in webinars uh, available, all of them on YouTube, where Mr. O'Brien and, and Seth Moulton both said that, look, the United States is not going to let the TSMC factories in Taiwan remain intact if there's a unification with China and the US would even go so far as to blow up the factories. Um, O'Brien went on this long tear about scorched earth tactics and how even Vichy France um, lost its hardware because the, um, the allies didn't want to give that hardware to the Nazis when the Nazis took France. Um, so this, you know, was dismissed by parts of the media saying, well, Seth Moulton was misquoted. I don't think he was. In fact, uh, Michelle Floteroy, who was part of the Trump administration, was on that same panel. And she interrupted Mr. Moulton and said, listen, what you're talking about is going to have $2 trillion damage to the world economy. So better grow up, Seth. Um, you know, I don't think he was misquoted. O'Brien also was not misquoted because the Army War College of the United States has actually a study which talks about the importance of going and blowing up the plant in case they needed, that needed to be done. Extraordinary language. Uh, but Berkshire Hathaway makes a final point that if they're going to pull out of Taiwan, which they have now, they might make new investments to the semiconductor industry in Japan. Interesting. It's not going to benefit the United States necessarily. Japan and South Korea, uh, they, are, they are in at the threshold of being able to benefit from this situation. Tough story. As usual, we'll be looking at this even more. Yovid, give the people what they want. Brought to you from People's Dispatch. That's Zoe and Prashant. I'm Vijay from Globetrotter. Uh, we've got another 15 minutes of great stories for you. We're going to start off with some extraordinary events taking place in Spain. One would have thought Spain, part of Europe, you know, very advanced countries, enlightenment and so on. What's this about racism in Spain, Zoe? Well, it, last Sunday during a football match, um, there were extremely racist attacks against a Brazilian football player, Vinicius Jr. Um, and 
for football fans who watch the game a lot, who have been in stadiums, attacks like these are unfortunately uh, nothing new, um, especially in Europe. Uh, racist comments, racist chants, uh, misogynist, all sorts of horrific uh, chants are used against players. Um, but, you know, it's it's relentless. And so Vinicius Jr., who is a 22-year-old football player from Brazil, he's one of the star players on Real Madrid, um, had enough and he he finally he spoke out on his social media pages about this racist abuse and attacks. He was also taken out of the game. He called out uh, the fans in the middle of the match. I mean, extremely courageous, um, given the, you know the the thousands of people who are up there chanting, saying horrific things. He calls them out on social media, um, and it really uh, sparks this this debate and this feud within uh, Spanish football. Uh, the president of La Liga, who's also a member of the Vox party, the far right party, um, responds to him saying, how can you say this? Uh, saying that uh, the whole league is racist is um, so unfair. Um, he even pulled up an old video of Venecia saying, well, actually the racism has gotten a bit better horrible things, especially coming from this, you know, far right person with so much power to actually impact the policies and actually try to make these stadiums a safer place for these football players who are, you know, putting their life on the line uh, every single day, going to these stadiums, facing up this abuse. Uh, the government of Lula da Silva rallied behind Vinicius, as did many football players across the world. Um, so it was a, a quite interesting week, especially given um, you know, the protests that are ongoing in India with the wrestlers, we're really seeing athletes actually challenging these systems of power, which is such an interesting um, development and so important. They're often seen as sort of these apolitical subjects that kind of just entertain us. But really, they are, of course, um, political subjects. But on the point of Brazil, and just to add quickly, because it's been a crazy week in Brazil, I feel like I'm constantly listening to podcasts, trying to follow the news, but still unable to keep up. This week alone, um, several different key measures and kind of debates occurred in Parliament, between the Parliament and the Executive and the Supreme Court. On one hand, the Commission of Parliamentary Inquiry against the landless workers' uh, movement began essentially a circus, as João Pedro Sérgio would say, a right-wing circus just to use to attack the movement, um, to say extremely polemic statements about that they're terrorists, that they're criminals, that they invade land, things which the movement has time and time again proved are not true. An invasion is one thing, a land occupation is another. We've tried to lay this out in different posts on social media as well, because a lot of fake news is being used to justify this attack on the landless rural workers movement of Brazil, which is one of the largest movements in the country and really in the continent, the largest producer of organic rice in the region as well. Um, so very, very important to stay tuned to this Parliamentary Commission of Inquiry. Members of the MST will also be testifying in this, a crucial development there. Also, the investigation about the uh, acts on January 8th in the Capitol in Brasilia, where Bolsonaro supporters invaded the different buildings, destroyed the president's palace, destroyed elements of the Congress, lots of art destroyed, historical artifacts. That's going on, a lot of investigation into who financed uh, these attacks, who participated, what are the political forces operating behind this? And members of the MST have pointed out often that actually some of the people who are implicated in January 8th are the same people who are trying to take forward this investigation 
against the MST. And then the last thing which I'll mention is that there's also a serious attack against indigenous people and the environment in Brazil. Right-wingers in the Congress have really coordinated attack. They're pushing for a vote on a legislation which would say that any territory which uh, is uh, historically indigenous, but if it was not in occupied by indigenous people in 1988, it does not count as indigenous land. So these are crucial developments, very, very important to stay tuned. Brazil is an enormous country and really marks uh, the current in a lot of ways for the region. So we'll be staying tuned on that. You started with the story of sports. It's important to highlight Indian wrestlers protesting against sexual harassment in Delhi. Brave sports people. They're not going to take it anymore, they say. Not going to take it anymore. Um, the Arab League meeting. Well, Syria's back, Prashant. Surprise? Yeah. I mean, uh, if you've been following developments for the past three or four months, not a surprise so much. But I think the sheer visual aspect of it, nonetheless, was quite remarkable. Bashar al-Assad and uh, Mohammed bin Salman greeting each other like, <laughs> like nothing had happened, you know, consider and considering the fact that even until recently, Saudi Arabia was in the forefront of trying to overthrow the, Al the Bashar al-Assad government. So quite drastic changes in uh, recent times. They've been building up, like I said, it's if over the years following the region, you get a sense that it's been building up, but uh, still nonetheless very drastic developments. So I think it's a very uh, unique moment because uh, uh, Syria was, of course, readmitted, but this also comes as part of a longer process that's taking place. We talked about how uh, Iran and Saudi Arabia have uh, re-established uh, diplomatic ties. I believe an Iranian ambassador has also been uh, announced as well. Uh, we know that the negotiations in Yemen have kind of picked up since that decision took place. Uh, the Arab League has called for a stable government uh, to be formed in Lebanon. And uh, there's been some development there also. There seems to be a small step towards breaking the deadlock, uh, towards finding a presidential candidate who can then you know, swear in the new government that is to be formed. So all over the place, it does look like uh, there is, uh, of course, this does not mean that everything is uh, you know, hunky-dory, so to speak. Everyone has forgotten their old rivalries. Obviously, everyone, all the countries concerned are wary, but the fact nonetheless that they are in a position of where they're talking itself is a very positive sign. And I think this is a process that has picked up steam, picked up momentum over the past couple of years, but also the past few months. And I think this poses a very difficult question to the United States because I believe as one of the commentators I was reading said that the question here is not who's involved with who, who's talking to whom, as much as who's not in the picture. And the answer to that is the United States. And this is a region where the U.S. has for long been the most dominant power. So, of course, they tried sending allies. They tried giving all kinds of messages to prevent this process, but it's not really happened. And uh, so very interesting times ahead for the region. Uh, it remains to be seen. And, of course, so many factors contributing to it. We know that uh, you know oil prices played a part. The fact that these, guys, these countries have been working closely with Russia. We do know that sanctions may have worried many of the countries. The sanctions that were imposed on Russia may have worried many countries because if a big economy like Russia could be so completely sanctioned, who's to say that tomorrow it couldn't be Saudi Arabia or any other country in the uh, West Asia region? So I think all these factors together have made countries far more cautious of the positions they want to take. And of course, this also leaves a very important question about Israel as well, which is in the midst of its own domestic uh, chaos. And considering that Israel and the United States had pursued a very alternative agenda for the region, which was the Abraham Accords, which was this idea that Israel and the friends of the US together would sort of 
uh, formed this alliance against Iran and his friends, and everything was being pitched as this battle of, you know, contesting ideologies and all that kind of stuff. And that process seems to have kind of really ground to a halt. So, which is I, uh, which is I think a very positive development because that process was uh, inherently a very violent one, a conflict-ridden one. Talked about, you know, it was constantly the threat of war loomed because of that process, the Israel and US-led process. So the fact that old rivals are sitting together at the table, they're shaking hands, they're talking, they're maybe beginning to see if some issues can be resolved is a very positive step. Now, I think we have to be clear that there are, this could always be derailed. We never know what are the factors that could, you know, put, bring obstacles to this, uh, to this process. But nonetheless, that it's happening itself is a very positive development, I think, in the, maybe the last decade. It's one of the more positive developments in the whole region since Libya and Syria were destroyed. That dynamic has continued. And now there is a counter process that is taking place, which uh, is, I think, a very welcome news. So uh, unusually so, I think usually Arab League summits are not, uh, you know, moments where you sort of sit and think, hey, that's not a bad, <laughs> uh, that's not a bad thing considering the nature of the participants. But I think this time it's a positive development. You may remember, Prashant, that in the old days when Gaddafi was at the Arab sub, Arab League meetings, they were very exciting because Gaddafi would turn to, let's say, the king of Saudi Arabia and say, you're a creation of, of, the, of the British. And then he turned to the Emir of Qatar and said, you're a dog of the United States. I mean, Gaddafi used to really make those summits into a circus. Uh, and the o Organization of African Union summits as well. That Those also disintegrated after him, yeah. That's true. Gaddafi played a real role in, 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 well, giving reporters things to write about when it comes to summits. Wait a minute. I'm going to talk about another summit. Uh, that's the G7 summit, which was held in Hiroshima. Well, interesting choice for the G7, one of its members being Japan, to host the meeting at Hiroshima, which is the site of the first nuclear attack on a civilian uh, setting. Before that, Nuclear bombs had been dropped in test sites in the South Sea Islands, um, in 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 the eastern, uh, the western, southwestern part of the United States. Had catastrophic environmental impact in the South Sea Islands. It did impact the lives of people who suffered from long-term damage and so on. But here, Hiroshima, the first place where a bomb was dropped on a civilian target, a city of 350,000 people. Lots of people lost their lives. Interesting choice for the G7. Well, the G7 came to Hiroshima with the expectation that they would have a very strong and you know united statement against China. Um, there was talk of having you know platforms for um, monitoring economic coercion and this, that, and the other. As it turned out, there were differences in the G7. Much of this hasn't been properly reported. We're going to get leaks coming soon. You know, we'll hear from the French and perhaps even the Italians about why they were not so keen on a, um, on a single-minded approach towards China. When you look at the final statement, in fact, the first sentence, which I really want to read, the first sentence of the section on China is quite extraordinary. And here's the first sentence. The G7 writes, we recognize the importance of engaging candidly with and expressing our concerns directly to China. I mean, I, in all my years of covering events such as the G7, reading their statements, I've never seen such an apologetic statement, you know, where they are coming out and saying, look, listen, forgive us a little bit, um, but we're, 
we're going to candidly speak now to you, China. You know, I've never heard this. Normally, they just lay in. For instance, the second line, line um, also says, we acknowledge the need to work together with China. I mean, this seems to me an enormous walk back from the position the United States wanted when it arrived in Hiroshima, um, that the very first sentence says, we, we want to speak candidly. And then the next sentence of the final communique says, we acknowledge the need to work together with China on what? On global challenges, areas of common interest, climate change, biodiversity, global health security, gender equality. Very interesting. This suggests to me that the European Commission's head, uh, Ursula von der Leyen, her statements made, public statements made in, um, in Hiroshima uh, were revealing. I mean, she said in these public remarks that, look, we have problems with um, the economic coercion of the United States. Now, she didn't say this directly. She said that, well, U.S. subsidies are a problem, you know, including industrial subsidies and so on. In other words, there is something happening in the House of Hamlet. You know, there are mysterious things going on there. There are disputes inside the G7. They are not as united as one thought around China. And they are having to acknowledge um, that there are various important areas of common concern uh, with which they have to deal. And China has to be back on the table with them. Very interesting development. I don't think the G7 should be walking out of Hiroshima or rather flying out of Hiroshima in the in the hundreds of, of uh, very small planes that they come in, which are enormous carbon uh, polluters. Um, they shouldn't be flying out of Hiroshima with a sense of resolve. Let's go back to the Cold War against China. In fact, I see this as a strategic walk back. Uh, that's the G7 summit. You've got Bashar al-Assad at the Arab League summit. You've got a walk back at the G7 summit and you have the um, the you know liberation day in Africa, very interesting developments around the world. You get to hear about all of them and give the people what they want. Brought to you by People's Dispatch. That's Prashant and Zoe. New story coming up there on the 60th anniversary of the Cuban medical professionals. Go and read it. I'm Vijay from Globetrotter. See you next week. Yeah.